just terminally and, 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 and malignantly untrusting. We don't want to be that way. In general, on the other hand, we must strive to find a balance between trust and what we call today healthy skepticism. Do you hear me? There's, there, there's something between those two extremes that we need to encounter, and it is healthy skepticism. And so our task over the next few moments is to try to get an understanding of what healthy skepticism is. And there are four things I want to suggest to you this morning, and we'll go through these and we'll be done. The first is this. Healthy skepticism is this. It is skeptical. Skeptical, I can't, can't say it's skeptical. It is skeptical about fallen human nature. Healthy skepticism is skeptical. Man, skeptical about... I need some water. It's skeptical about fallen human nature. Now, to be trusting doesn't mean to be Foolish. In light of this one reality, and we mentioned this reality last week, and the reality is this, and this isn't just a verse you use to convince people that they need to become a Christian, but this is a verse that, that describes the plight of humanity and the reality in the world around us. And that is Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Human nature apart from God is fallen. We live in a world, don't we, in which evil is everywhere. Take off your rose-colored glasses and look at the world for what it is. That's what I love about the Bible because the Bible doesn't paint, paint some Pollyannish picture of life or, 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 or of the world or even of Christianity, but it, it, it depicts life kind of as, as, as it is, as you find it. In the Old Testament, we see the lives of the, the great uh, men and women of faith in all of their glory and all of their inglory and all of their... In, all of their positive aspects and all of their negative aspects as well. We see in the New Testament the grit and the grime of, of, of the gospel coming into a real fallen world and we see what happens when Jesus comes on the scene and, and he falls in the hands of sinful men who try him unjustly and crucify him. All part of the plan of God but that's the world we live in. That's the way of the world. It's a fallen planet. We are, fa we are among fallen people. Evil is everywhere. And that doesn't mean that we as citizens of the kingdom of God should not feel a kind of safety in the arms of Jesus because in the words of philosopher Dallas Willard, for those who have placed their trust in Christ, the world becomes a safe place because we understand who holds us and who guides us, who protects us, and we understand that our future is secure and that our destiny is certain. Yes, we can feel a certain level of safety. We can proclaim what the psalmist proclaimed when he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. However, he does remind us that we are often walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We find ourselves in perilous places, but that doesn't mean that we should presumptuously place ourselves in harm's way. And while we, we routinely walk through those kinds of foreboding spaces, if you will, the valley of the shadow of death, we find sometimes if you only knew the, the danger that was lurking about you, you would be totally freaked out. There's some places if you knew what was going on just on the other side of the wall or who was watching you or who was plotting or who was, who was checking you out, it would be terrifying. Sometimes it's good what we don't know. 
And even more importantly than that, if we understood in the realm of the spirit, two things. First of all, if we knew the demonic, uh, the demonic hosts that were really dead set against us and trying to bring about our demise, it would terrify us. But for the fact that we see the angels of God and all of the resources of heaven that have been dispatched to our defense. But what we don't do, right, is that we don't place ourselves in situations where we know we are facing danger and untrustworthy people. In other words, I probably wouldn't do this. Go home and put on a suit and a tie, a little handkerchief in the pocket, dress shoes, put on my watch, maybe some jewelry. And then get on the bus and go down in the center of town to get to catch the last bus at 1 a.m. and go down to the center of town in the seediest part of the neighborhood and go walk by faith. I'm just going to go just check out. Just, you guys know I'm, I'm, an, I'm kind of an urban hiker. I like to, I've been walking L.A. a lot. And, and, and I, it, it, it's so, I just discovered after, I mean, I've been here all my life, but driving in the car, what you see at street level uh, it's totally different than what you see in, or don't see in the car. But I wouldn't decide to go walk Skid Row at 2 a.m. with a dress suit on and a briefcase in my hand and a Rolex on my arm. Why? Because we know that we live. In fact, I wouldn't do that in Inglewood. I wouldn't do that in Gardena where I live. I wouldn't even do that in Palos Verdes or Brentwood or anywhere. Because we know that we live in a fallen world. And we know that there are dangers all about us. And so you don't set yourself up to be hurt. You don't set yourself up from, for danger because you understand the fallenness of human nature. People are fallen and we have to accept that fact. I know that some of you want to be positive people and think positively and we should, we really do need to lay down a lot of the judgmentalism and a lot of the criticism and a lot of the, 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 the ill temper and the, and the malice that we carry. On the other hand, we, do not, we don't not, do not need to be foolish about the reality of evil in the world. Fallen human nature, people mess up. People are fallen People are sinners apart from the grace of God. And even Jesus, he knew what was in man. He knew that some people had, had ill will. Some people had wrong motives. Some people had anger in their hearts. Some people were not, out to, were not up to any good. Jesus knew that. He was able to look clearly. And so I'm trying to be like Jesus in every way. And that, that means not only meek and mild, humble and holy, but that means I want to be... In the words of scripture, wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. A dove ain't going to bite you, but he ain't going to let you bite him. And the serpent ain't going to let you bite him, and he'll bite you back. I, where did I go with that? Where did I get that from? But you get the idea. There's the, the, the balance here is between being wise and shrewd and asking for God's, for a spirit of discernment and understanding the reality of fallen human nature while still not being malicious, not being angry, not being critical, not being overbearing. And in our society, we understand, listen, society, us getting along and, and surviving and, and thriving as, as a society, as a, as, a, as a nation, for instance, is predicated upon that understanding. And that's why we have things like 
policemen who patrol our streets. And some of you in your neighborhoods may have a, a neighborhood watch group that you may even be a part of because you understand that your neighbor next door is a nice person and neighbors next but there are people that come in your neighborhood that aren't so nice. And there's stuff that goes on after the sun goes down that isn't so cool because people are falling. We've got to deal with that. And some of us struggle with that because we just want to think, and you have to be careful because in the broader culture, there's been this, this idea, well, you know, well, everyone is just, everyone's inherently good and everyone is just so, is wonderful. And, and I wish that were true. Now, what happens is this healthy doubt clears the way for healthy trust. Because we could su- suppose that all people are good, but a biblical worldview suggests another way of looking at this. And that is we understand that people are only potentially good apart from this thing of Christ in us. In other words, everyone is potentially good, but that doesn't mean everybody's good. And the difference, we believe, is Jesus Christ in us. And so we understand that while all people are potentially good, all people are born sinners, and therefore all people are not to be trusted without having been tested. So, as I said last week, young ladies, it means those, those nice guys that seem to have that nice smile and that gentle manner. And they are kind and they buy you things and take you places to lunch and then ask you to pay. No, that's the other guys. But everybody. Now, now follow me because what we're going with this, it's, it's going to get a little closer to home. You, you, you understand what we're saying? A healthy skepticism is skeptical about human nature, the fallenness of it, because that's a reality. And so while we, have, we hold high ideals, we must do this. We must think. We've got to learn to think realistically and not just idealistically. I, I, we hold high ideals. We hold high standards. We look for the best in people. We hope for the best and we pray for the best and strive towards excellence. We expect good for people, but... We think about life and look at life realistically, realizing that everybody is fallen. Even those of us who are saved, we were, we were, we were sinners have, who have been saved by grace, but we still have the propensity and the proclivity to sin. And so, for instance, if we enter marriage and we've never, maybe never heard our parents argue, we may be setting up our marriage for failure because we somehow expect our own spouse to be perfect because we think that one of our parents or both of our parents were somehow perfect and that their marriage was predicated upon them being really good people and just being totally meek and mild. You don't know what went on behind closed doors or when you were at school or when you weren't there. But you understand what I'm saying. There's this idea. We look, we look at, at, at that situation and we say, oh, well, that means that somebody has to be, was perfect and so I've got to be perfect and I expect her or him to be perfect and then... You, uh, you realize that disagreements are normal, and then, you, and then what happens is we begin to become skeptical concerning perfectionism. In other words, we need to look at those situations and realize that, listen, nobody is perfect, and so what I need to be skeptical about is perfectionism. In other words, when people look too perfect, then they're, they're, guess what? If they look too good, it's probably too good to be true. Does that mean that they're bad? No, it means that they're human like you. You understand, I'm, I'm, I'm treading a, a, a line down the middle between two extremes, and so we're trying to find a safe place to land here. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. 
you you look at look at look at spiritual leaders like pastors and others like myself and you expect you should expect excellence and character and and ethical behavior and 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 holiness from those who lead you but you dare not expect perfection because even the holiest leader in the body of Christ is a fallen sinner saved by grace who still is in is in fallen flesh and that's that we see that in in the bible repeatedly in the new testament you say well cuz you'll say well david didn't have the holy ghost the spirit hadn't fallen David was, you know, did, did bad stuff and blah, blah, blah. But in, but in the New Testament, it, Paul isn't flawless. Peter isn't flawless. After, after the, the, the birth of the church, after the Holy Spirit has fallen, they're, they're not perfect. Paul ha- and Peter engage in conflict. There's the thing with John Mark. There, there's, there's angst and there's, there's friction in the New Testament because they're human. And, the, the, and God wants us to realize that we need to look at other people through that same lens and become skeptical, skeptical about perfection, perfectionism. And so this is where this goes. We conclude that since we are all sinners, we should expect the best of each other, but we must allow for the weakness of human nature. Healthy skepticism includes our being skeptical about human nature. And that leads us to the second point, which means that it, it leads us to be skeptical about our own fallen selves. Boy, I got real quiet when I said that. Pastor, I'm not trying to hear nothing about me. We want to talk about them other folk. Mm. Skeptical about our own fallen selves. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that and we'll break this out over the next couple of minutes, but that there is a level of distrust that is probably health for you to hold towards yourself. There's a certain skepticism that you need to, to have toward yourself. In other words, it goes like this. Self, it's the issue of self-confidence versus self-delusion. Now, you know we, we live in the age of, of, of self-esteem and self-confidence, and we've reared a couple generations of children on, um, on, this, on this ideal, you know, because the greatest love affair is, is you and you and whatever, you know, you're just, you know, little Johnny, little Janie, whatever your name is, you just, you're, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, no matter what you do, we're not going to give you a grade, we'll just give you an A in everything, because, and, you're, and you, you, you were on the soccer team, and you, you totally, you, you just are a total loser, but we're going to give you a trophy anyway, just for showing up, and, you know, I wish they did that in life. I wish in life I got a trophy. I wish I got something just for showing up. I've been showing up to a lot of stuff for a long time. Huh? <laughs> yeah. But you, we've done that. And, and so self, there are people whose self-confidence gets in the way because it has become self-delusion. Having such a high opinion of ourselves that we cannot see our own faults. We tell ourselves that we're okay, it's all good, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm right, I'm, I'm the best, I, I, I'm, I'm on it, I'm doing well. When we might experience more growth and more satisfaction and more development and more peace and more joy and more fulfillment if we would be honest with ourselves, if we would engage in a little bit more honest self-reflection. 
See, I'm not talking about the old stuff. Some of us came up in religious settings where it was like always browbeaten and then you grew up and you never knew if you were saved and you never knew if you were good. I'm not talking about that. We got over that a couple generations ago, didn't we? That's not so much the case now. The case now is people are, 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 are want or are, they hesitate to, to even look in themselves because they just want everything I do is good because I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. The Holy Ghost lives in me. I'm, you know, I'm the head and not the tail. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Blah, blah, blah. I got my scriptures and they're just like my affirmations and I just say them. I don't think about living them. I don't think about whether I measure up because I never slow down and get quiet enough to evaluate myself. I never say as the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer. I'm just, I'm good. Just affirm me. Sometimes it's really good to slow down and say, God, would you help me? Would you shine the searchlight of heaven upon my soul? Would you help me to see myself a little bit? Because you know what? Jesus, Jesus in, his, in his meekness, in his mildness, in his love, in his compassion, he's not going to, the Holy Spirit is not, not going to railroad you. He's not going to overwhelm you. He's not going to fill you with guilt. He's not going to, 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 to break you down with condemnation. What he's going to do is show you yourself so that you can allow the healing oil of the Holy Spirit to flow into your life and the power of God to bring growth and change. God is going to convict you of your sins. Conviction and condemnation are two different things. Condemnation is when I say you're guilty and that's it. You're condemned. That's it. Now all we need to do is figure out what the sentence is. Conviction is, 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 is similar, but in the biblical sense, conviction is like this. I did wrong, but now... I have the option of receiving forgiveness and grace. Con- condemnation is the, is, the, is the conviction, is the sentence, and, is the pro- proclamation, and, and the penalty. Condemned means you, you're going to die. There's no hope for you. Condemnation means you're, you're lost. God is done with you. Get out of here. Conviction means you need to get that right. You need to do that differently. You did wrong. Now, would you turn back to me, and would you allow me to forgive you, and to heal you, and to cleanse you, and to make it right? That's the difference. But if we never slow down, if we never listen, because we need to be skeptical about ourselves. In other words, see, there are some of you that have put yourself in situations where, you, where your better self says, you know, you should have known better because you are a sinner. You got the drinking problem and you decide you're going to take a night job as a bartender. Because the Lord is going to help me because he know I need this money. Well, the Lord will help you. You can go do something else. There's a lot of illustrations I could bring to bear, and then I'm going to leave that alone. But you know what I'm talking about. We, we sometimes, we put ourselves in situations that we would do better to avoid because we fail to be skeptical enough about the fact that, hey, I'm a sinner. Romans 12, 3 says this. This is what Paul writes. He says, For the grace of, by, by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you that not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Say sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. And that's what we're talking about. Sober judgment means, you know what? Uh, this is, I would, think, I would probably characterize you know, myself, and you could do the same like this. It's like, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not not what I used to be. 
I'm on the road to, to, to heaven. I'm, I'm being changed, transformed day by day. I'm living from grace, from glory to glory, from grace to grace. Uh, my character is being formed and my heart is being shaped. And, 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 and I can say in general terms that, 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 I, that my heart is in the right place and that I, I, I'm on a good path. I, I, and, and you can as well, that Jesus is, is alive in me and the Holy Spirit indwells me and empowers me. You know, and, and, uh, and, 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 and that, I'm, that, that I'm, I'm trying with everything within me to follow Christ. On the other hand, I realize I'm still, I still have a fallen nature. So I, I dare not put myself in the situations where I'm excessively tempted. I, I dare not suppose that I am incapable of betraying others. I am incapable of sinning. So I have to watch me. I have to manage me. I've got to take authority over me. It's, in, it's essential that we distrust our ability. And get the, the wording on this. It's a little convoluted, but you'll get it. That we distrust our ability not to be betrayers ourselves. In other words, that it's essential that if we take this statement, I will not be a betrayer. I am not a betrayer. We're talking about betrayal. It's important that you distrust that statement. In other words, if you think that you are beyond the ability to betray someone, think again. Remain somewhat skeptical about that so that you will be on guard for the situations when that might be a reality. Now look at Peter in the New Testament. Perfect example. It's like, you know, one of you will betray me. Peter's like, no way. No way I'm ever going to. He said, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, twice rather, you're going to deny me three times. But he said, no, no. He, did, he, had, he felt he was beyond betrayal. A feeling, a, an idea that he needed to have distrusted. But in his brashness, in his self-delusion, excessive self-confidence... He set himself up, didn't he? So that in the time of trial, he had not prepared mentally, he was not prepared spiritually. And what he was really on the inside and, and where he was unprepared and where he was un, un, uncultivated and unshaped by, by God, he fell into sin. He betrayed Jesus. Skeptical about own fallen selves distrusting our ability not to be betrayers ourselves. So, and this is where we turn this around because if I, if I teach about betrayal, you might assume that it's going to all be, I know you've been betrayed and I know that you're broken and hurting. Oh, but God loves you and he'll heal your broken heart because Jesus was betrayed too and God will get your betrayers and he's going to fix them. Go in there and find some imprecatory psalms where the psalmist is ripping people and you lay claim to those and hold on to it and confess those against your people. God will destroy my enemies who betrayed me. But that's not where this goes. If we are to be honest, if we're to be real about it, where we have to go is this. Yes, I've been betrayed. Yes, you've been betrayed. Yes, we've been hurt. Yes, we have been mistreated. Yes, we have been lied on and we've been cheated. But here's the deal. 
we cannot go forward and we cannot find a safe place of healing unless we come to grips with the fact that we too are betrayers. It wasn't just my neighbor's sin that sent Jesus to the cross, my friend. It was my sin as well. We have to face the fact that all of us, whether we have actually betrayed, I, I guarantee you it's somewhere in your life you have, whether big or small, whether known to you or unknown, we have to face the fact that we are betrayers ourselves and freely confess, how many times have you broken a promise? How many times have you failed to keep your word? How many times have you let somebody down? Maybe not a lot of times, maybe very many times, maybe one time. But because of our fallenness, we're betrayers as well. And let me help us to understand, let me help you understand why this is important for you in your quest for healing. It's not to put you down, it's to put you in the, in the company of other people and it's to place you in, in, in the realm of reality and not fantasy. Because you know where we'll tend to go with this. We'll tend to go into this place Well, I'm in this special space because I've been betrayed now so I've got special rights. I've got the right to self, I've got the right to self-pity. I've got the right to sympathy. I've got the right to do what I want to do. And I can, I can cuss people out and be mean to people. And I can be crabby because I've been people that messed over me. And, and I got, I'm hurt and I've got a right to be this way. We, that, that isn't healing. That's not the place you want to go. That's not the destination that God has. If you've been hurt, if you're broken, if, if you've got betrayal in your past, if you've got things in you that need to be healed, that's not the place you want to go. It's not the place of self-pity. It's not the place. There's no security. There's no safety in that spot. You go to the place of honesty, and the place of honesty says this. You know what? I've been betrayed. And, and I know that there are some people in our lives that have done heinous things to us. There, some of us have, have endured egregious and horrendous treatment. And Jesus weeps with us and, and feels our pain and stands alongside us in the midst of our, of our trial. Yes, know that and embrace that. But he also reminds us, uh, reminds us as well. That we're betrayers as well. And so, when we deal with that, this is, there, here are three things that that's going to open us to. Number one, it will enable us to begin to forgive those who betray us. Hey, Jesus taught us to pray. He said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So you got to take it out the realm of the old English Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. No, he's talking about sins, because that remains really abstract to you, because it's not about debts. It's about sins. It's about offenses. It's like people doing stuff to you. He says, for, we, we got to pray this every day. Lord, would you forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us? And then Jesus goes on in another setting to explain that if you can't get to that forgiveness that you're seeking until you deal with the forgiveness that you must give, which means, based upon what we're talking about right now, is that that forgiveness is predicated upon us. If we're asking God to forgive, if we're trying to ask God to forgive someone who's be, who betrays us, it means that we've got to be willing to forgive them ourselves and that we've got to realize that we are as well betrayers. That we, and listen, when people have messed over you, I don't care how badly they have wounded you, how badly they've mistreated you, when we come to grips with our own sinfulness and our own fallenness, we realize that there is this, 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 this unbreakable bond between us and our oppressors, us and those who have wronged us, and that is that we are both sinners. We are both equals in what we would call the fellowship of the undeserving. And when we recognize that, that diffuses our tendency towards judgmentalism. Do you hear me? 
Oh, I hope you're following me this morning. When we realize that we too are betrayers, that we are sinners, and that the people who have perpetrated betrayal against us, that we share that common humanity and that common fallenness, it enables us to be freed from judgmentalism. That's how you go through hurt and you go through loss and you go through mistreatment and you come out not being a judgmental critic, an angry, bitter person, but you come out in the, in the grace of God. Secondly, we're freed from a shallow naivete about individuals and relationships. What do I mean by that? The naive way of looking at relationships is that in everything there's always one right and one wrong person and usually I'm right and they're wrong. I get so tired of people who, when you hear them, everything that they talk about, because for, we, don't tell the, we don't tell the stories where we mess up. We tell the stories where somebody's done something to us. We never recount stuff. You know, I just want to tell you what I did to this person and how, how I set them up and messed over them. It was really something the way I took advantage of them. And you know, and we, we, don't do, we don't tell those stories. We tell the stories about, in great detail about what people did to us. They called me down there and blah, 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 blah. And then 15 minutes later, and then blah, 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 blah. And then about lunchtime, after lunch, let me tell you the rest of the story. But we don't tell the ones on our side. It's, a naive, it's naive to look at life that way. When you look at stuff, it's very seldom. Now, sometimes, I'll be honest with you, to be real, because they always say in marriage, it's never, you know, it's never 100% one person's fault when there's a divorce. And, but it's, but it's, it's often not 50-50 as well. Sometimes it is like 98-2, believe me. Because I want to be real about it. Sometimes there, sometimes there are people that just out of the evil of their own heart or their own lack of character, they just messed up over you. I understand it. But all of life is not that. And in every situation, it's not always that I'm right and they're wrong. That's a naive way to look at life. Life is not that polarized. In other words, and, and in a lot of things, there's, there's a mixture of factors which maybe would cause us to withhold those kinds of rigid judgments in, in, in larger settings and in... in, in, uh, in, in congregational settings and social and organizational settings and in, in, in global settings it's like it's not you, you know we always want to we always want to find the one entity the one person to convict and to to to, uh, to to try to convict and to execute because they're the whole reason for this without taking into example into, into consideration of other factors and the fact that other people are wrong as well and because there's some people that do horribly wrong things but they have been triggered by several other people and several other things sometimes sometimes not but a naive and simplistic way of looking at life is like, why is everybody always picking on me? <laughs> and what we need to be released into this new objectivity about people and situations. Because confessing my own disloyalties brings me into this he healthy skepticism about myself. Oswald Chambers put it like this. He said, he said, there is no sin of which I am not capable. Some of us would gladly admit that. Some of us, yes, for sure. Some of us are loath to admit that because we think that we have gotten to a place where we have gotten beyond certain sins. And some of us think that, well, I, I just, it's just, I'm not going to admit that I'm, I'm just not that bad. No, and you know, the issue is about us being fallen sinners. It's not that we are as bad as we could be because few human beings are as bad as they could be. The thing is that we are bad off as we can be because we're, we come into this world as born as sinners and separated from God and we need the grace of God to, to, to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. But Chambers says, there's no sin of which I'm not capable. 
if I'm skeptical about myself, I can have this healthy skepticism about others. So what happens is to love others as I love myself gives me a wholesome skepticism about everybody, including most of all me. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I'm getting at here? A balanced trust this way and a balanced skepticism. I look at, I start with me. I look at me. I'll tell you one of the most inane and useless statements that I hear people make in contemporary settings. Is that, well, I'm a good person. What does that mean? <laughs> by whose standard? By what measure? It is the ultimate flawed and biased self-assessment because it means that in whatever setting I'm speaking, I, 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 I've... I'm sure I'm pretty faultless in this situation. I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I, there's 20 people have said that to me in the last 20 years. Uh, well, I'm a, and it's, usually it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a rationale or a justification in the midst of some conflict or some, they're going this, well, well, I'm a good person. What does that mean? What does that mean? So what happens is I begin, I look at myself like this and say, hey, I'm a saved person. I'm a spirit-filled person. I, I view and I, I strive to be a man of integrity, a man of character. I'm a loving person. I, I'm, I'm, I'm striving to be a kind person. I believe in, I believe in, in service, service and servanthood. I believe in giving and caring and sharing. I, 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 I do love other people and I, I want to love better and I, I want to be loved and I, I want to have a, a, a circle of family and friends in my life with whom I have meaningful relationships. Those are real things I would, I would think about myself and I'm sure you would too. On the other hand, I don't love perfectly all the time. I can, I'm prone to selfishness. I can be stubborn. Stubbornness isn't a spiritual virtue. It's not a fruit of the spirit. Tenacity is. Holding on, perseverance endures, but stubbornness is me, just me wanting to get my way and, and digging in my heels until, uh, and mad-dogging people until it goes the way I want it to go or just withholding my, my participation and my, and my, my, and my involvement because I don't like what's going on. I, I'm all those wonderful things. I am. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Oh, but man, I dare not put myself in situations to be needlessly tested because I'm prone, I'm prone to fail. I'm prone to sin. I'm prone to, to, I'm prone to, to mistakes. And so I'm skeptical of myself. That way I work on myself. I evaluate myself. I watch myself. I manage myself. I keep myself on the altar. I keep myself nailed. I keep myself, in a sense, nailed to the cross with Jesus. In the words of Paul in Galatians 2.28, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And then I can look at other people. You know what? I know that I... I know what I'm capable of, so I'm going to cut you some slack, show you some grace, extend you some mercy, because it's immaterial whether you're a good or a bad person. The issue is that you're a human person, and human beings tend to sin. We're We're recovering from sin, and we're getting better, but we are all capable of making mistakes. And then understanding that we're betrayers ourselves as well will release us to a wiser kind of self-confidence. Because cynicism about myself, see, some of you are programmed against that because you came up in churches where all they did was tell you how good you were and they said, you just got to confess the word that you are this and you. Sometimes, you know, I don't care what you say. If, you, if, if, you, if you're a rascal, you're just a rascal. <laughs> in that moment. 
or you being, you acting like one of you, you know, whether you want to label yourself one or if it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it, if it floats in water and, and, uh, and flies slowly, it, it, it must be a duck, right? But what happens is a wiser self-confidence, see, self-confidence isn't just telling you it's all good, but a wise self-confidence drives me to Christ, it drives me to Jesus for the assurance that I need. And healthy self-confidence comes not from just confidence in myself, from a Christian perspective. Healthy self-confidence ultimately comes from confidence in Jesus. Therefore, I can draw truth from the Scripture. Scriptures that proclaim that it, Christ is in me and I am in Christ. And Christ in me is the hope of glory. I can draw inspiration and courage from all of those Scriptures. I'm crucified with Christ, but yet I live. But I understand this, that I, I ultimately need Christ. And my self-confidence is not just about me. It's about me and Christ. Because, man, let me tell you something. I don't care what you say. This is a church, and we, and we are Christians, and we believe the word of God. And let me tell you, without Jesus, you ain't got a, you ain't got a prayer. It ain't in me. I know Shaka said, I'm every woman. It's all in me. I don't know what's all in her, but it probably ain't what I'm looking for. It ain't what you're looking for, what you ain't trying to be. Because, listen, it's not all in you. It's not all about you. It's not, you're not all good. And you, whether you are a good person or a bad, God has called you a, 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 a sanctified and a saved person. And is making you a good and a better person. But ultimately, you are a saved person, a redeemed person, a renewed person, a new creation in Christ. That's what matters. And... And, and so, ultimately, the basis of my self-confidence is not me, but it is Jesus. That's what Paul says. He says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not by faith in me. And then let me just wrap this up. A couple other things here, and we'll, we'll, we'll be done. The third thing is that we, a healthy skepticism is skeptical about religious falsehood. And this is kind of off the subject a little bit, but we want to add this and just put this in the rubric here. Because you notice that Jesus doubted and was skeptical of those around him who made a career of hypocrisy. He was skeptical of the Pharisees and, and the power brokers, the power politics players of his, of his day. He was skeptical. We saw that in, our, in the text we read that he discerned and he was perceptive concerning what was in people he knew what was in people and so he protected his heart and his life and his reputation and his ministry and his purpose his goal sometimes you know we uh we can allow others to take us off track jesus wouldn't do that but he he he, made, he was he was skeptical of those people and we have to uh doubt several things as well we should be doubtful and should be skeptical concerning certain things like false religions like bad or inept, or insufficient Christian teaching. New Age notions that, you know, and I'm not worshiping God, I am God. You should be skeptical of that kind of thinking and that kind of talk. You should be skeptical of cultists and those who try to seize control of our minds and try to acquire too much power in our lives, too much control, and come with... with the aggrandizement of themselves and, 
and, and false teachings. I'll give you an example. Somebody like a Jim Jones, those who followed him, would have done well to have been skeptical of him and to have been doubtful about his integrity because obviously he had gone off the rails long before Jonestown and he led those 900 and some people to their death. Skeptical about religious falsehood, idolatry, and shallowness. We need to be. That's a healthy skepticism for Christians. And then finally, skeptical about our doubts. One author put it this way. He said, never discourage doubt, but always insist on its honesty. Derisive, sneering contempt is deceitful. It's just the skeptics or the scholars' way of looking down on other people. Honest doubt, like honest faith, remains open to learning. And so what we've got to do is be careful of a closed mind and a contemptuous attitude. Doubt is, and I want to, I want to teach more about doubt coming up because we've got some confused ideas about that word because of the fact that um, we don't always understand in Scripture what it refers to and we, uh, the way we've handled the, so-called, the issue of so-called faith. And many of us have been browbeaten over the head that we have to somehow generate psychological certainty about certain things for them to happen and that's faith and we, I maybe would suggest to you at some point that that's probably not exactly what the Bible is trying to describe for us in terms of faith and so then doubt means if I have any concerns or any, any weakness in my psychological certainty then that's doubt and then, and then that places me in sin and I'm a big spiritual loser. Listen you got doubts, I got doubts, all God's children got doubts. I won't go deep in that, but I'll just say that we have things that we don't understand, things that we wonder if they're true, things. There are things in Scripture that we're struggling with. Honest doubt will be open to being informed, whereas derisive and and, and contemptuous doubt is like this. I don't believe it. I got this problem, and I'm just, you know, this is where I am. But honest doubt would be, God, I, I'm struggling with this, but you help me to understand this a little bit better, and I'm going to leave this open and leave it before you. And, and you know what? You can, you can live with that and walk with that and, and sit with that for a while, and it'll be all right. It'll, God, by his Holy Spirit and through his word, will, will tend to, you know, Jesus said, seek and you will find. But be careful of a closed mind, a contemptuous attitude. We must reject unhealthy cynicism. Unhealthy doubt includes rejection of God as a fundamental proposition. That's not the kind of doubt we want to accept. Rejection of moral absolutes, we don't want to entertain that kind of doubt. Hold on to your belief in God. Hold on to the fact that right is, exists and wrong is right. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Paralyzing acceptance of the status quo or the unbroken mistrust of people. In other words mistrust that has not been broken and tempered and moderated by the grace of God. Now let's wrap this up. In Matthew 14, 28 through 31, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, again, so, so what is this saying? Peter's just a bad man because he doubted. No, he, he doubted, but you know what his, his problem was that he took his eyes off of Jesus. Why did Peter sink? 
He sank because he found himself relying or trusting in and being concerned with the power of the wind and the water more than he trusted the power of Christ. He took his eyes off of Jesus. And for us, we will sink when we succumb to the negativism and the negativity around us. We, we would otherwise find ourselves swept out to sea in a tsunami of doubt, skepticism, and mistrust if it were not for the wisdom of God that comes to us and informs us and enables us to take our eyes off the situations and off the people and off the things that have happened to us and off of ourselves and to place our eyes on Jesus and to seek his wisdom and his guidance and to allow him to shape our hearts and our minds and our emotions. So trusting God for his wisdom opens us up to be able to learn to trust, to be appropriately cynical, and to develop, in turn, networks of forgiving, trusting friends. Trusting God for his wisdom reminds us that in dealing with matters of trust and betrayal, we will need the wisdom that comes from God. In moderating our trust and skepticism in order to attain a healthy and biblical balance, we will need what? God's wisdom. In order to give ourselves freely to others, particularly those who merit our trust, because some people are worthy of it. There are some who are proven in our lives. But in order to give ourselves freely to those relationships, while at the same time guarding our hearts from those who are questionable and untested, we will need God's wisdom. In order to become more like Jesus who knew what was in men's hearts and governed himself accordingly, we will need, above all, the wisdom which comes from above. And as I conclude this morning, James provides helpful and encouraging words for us in our quest for wisdom. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Who gives generously to all without reproach, Without finding fault, and it will be given him. That's the promise that we can claim today. How many of you need that wisdom in your life? To develop a healthy skepticism and a healthy trust where trust is warranted. Next week we'll talk about the forgiveness factor. We'll we'll delve into the area of forgiveness in depth. But would you stand with me? We want to pray and we're going to release you this morning.